Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time that we can come into your presence and to listen to what you have to say in your word. Lord, we pray that you may uphold me this morning. Uh, Give me a strength of voice, give me the strength of mind to be able to uh, speak clearly about your word. And may you keep error far from my lips. Set a guard over my mouth this morning, Lord, and really use me to accomplish much here. May the saints who are gathered here this morning be encouraged and built up by what we read. And may those who do not believe, Lord, may they be uh, humbled and brought under your word. And may they see that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And we pray that you may transform lives present here this morning. Uh, to be no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but into the kingdom of light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not someone who takes waiting uh, very easily. Waiting, particularly for something that is very good, is often very difficult to do. And more so when the circumstances that we're under aren't particularly happy circumstances. We're waiting for something good and the circumstances we're in right now aren't the greatest. And so we have this at different times in our life and I remember when I was a student. You're studying and you're on very little uh, pay. You might have a part-time job. You're putting in long hours of study, working very hard and not getting much benefit uh, from what you're doing. But you know that in the future, when you graduate... You will be able to have money, you'll be able to buy the things that you want to but you can't at the moment, and you'll be able to do what you want uh, with a little more freedom than just simply doing what the, the lecturer tells you and instructs you to do. And so waiting for that is difficult, I found, when I was at uh, university. And then, of course, I went to Bible college and had to do some more waiting there as well. Um, and so it was a long, hard journey there. The Israelites... Here, as we're going to look at Ezra for the next couple of weeks, I'm not sure how many weeks, but we've moved from 1 Peter to spend some time in Ezra. They've been waiting for some time as well. Uh, They've come a long way from their first beginning. If you consider sort of a broad overview of Israelite history, you've got, um, of course, Adam and Eve in the beginning, then you've got Abraham, then you've got Isaac and Jacob, and then you've got the, the 12 tribes, then Moses, of course, comes along, and then they have the Exodus. They get into the Promised Land eventually, And then they have King David, and of course uh, things go well under him, Uh, and then Solomon is sort of the peak of Israelite history. And then what happens after Solomon? King Solomon, the kingdom becomes split. It goes into two, two groups. You've got sort of basically all Israel on one hand, and then you've got Judah uh, split up by the two sons of Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They split up the kingdom between them, and eventually the Israelites, uh, not the tribe of Judah, the rest... Uh, sin, 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 bad king, bad king, and eventually the Assyrian army comes in and pretty much obliterates them, and you don't really hear much from the, those tribes again. But the tribe of Judah goes for a bit longer, but still is pretty bad, doesn't heed God's warnings, and eventually the Babylonian army comes and kills quite a lot of them, but also takes a bunch of them over into exile, takes them away to Babylon, And that's where they wait. They wait and they wait. And they've been promised that one day you will get to go back. You will get to return to Jerusalem. You will be able to go back to the promised land. But you have to wait. You have to stay there. You have to spend some time there. And so they're waiting, basically in slavery. They've been deported over to Babylon. And then we get the news that we get with Ezra. 
They've been waiting, waiting, waiting. And then Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 opens up and we see that they are set free. They're set free from their slavery where they are in Babylon and allowed to return. Why is this book of Ezra here helpful for us as Christians? Why is it good for us to look at this? Why don't we just spend all our time in the New Testament and ignore what's here in Ezra? Well, as we look at this passage today, we're looking at the whole of chapter 1, I want us to consider how we were like the Israelites at the time of Ezra. We were once enslaved to sin and waiting for release, wanting to be released from our sin. You struggle with your sins, you want to do what is right, but you keep going back to sin again and again, and you want to be released. And so as we look at Ezra this morning, chapter 1, I want to note the parallels that happen between what happens to the Israelites, their experience, and what happens in the Christian experience. God acts in similar ways throughout history. And a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, uh, basically you see these different experiences of the Israelites that they're types of what happens in the New Testament. It's called typology, where there is a type of something that happens in the Old Testament which points to and reflects what Christ does for Christians. And so I want to look at the subject of freedom this morning, God's freedom and how it applies to the Israelites here and how it applies to us as Christians. And so I've got three main points this morning about how does God's freedom come? How does God's freedom come? And so my first main point is that freedom comes according to God's word. Freedom always comes according to God's word. And this we see is the case, of course, for the Israelites. What does it say in verse 1? In the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And then he goes on to say that they are released. It happens to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. God had predicted that this would happen. He had said, You'll be there for a period of basically 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 29, he says, stay there, uh, get married, build houses, and you'll be there for a 70-year period, he said. But when the 70 years comes to an end, you will be able to return. God promised in his word that freedom would come, and he promised when it would come. And he also promised in his word how it would come, well, basically who it would come through. It would come through this man Cyrus, king of Persia. The Persians basically um, took over the Babylonian kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar was the one responsible for removing the Israelites out of the land into Babylon. But then eventually uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, takes control of Babylon. And he is the one that says, you can now go back to the land. Your waiting is over. You're being set free. And God had actually predicted long before Cyrus was even born that Cyrus would be the one. In Isaiah chapter 45, it's quite an incredible statement. Um, Commentators have a real struggle with it. Isaiah uh, 45, verse 1, says, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. And then he goes on to speak about what Cyrus will do. Cyrus was named by Isaiah before any of this actually took place. 
God had said this was going to be the guy that was going to do it. And so we see that freedom always comes according to the word of God. He predicts when it will happen, and he says who will be the one who brings the freedom. And this is the case for, the, for us as Christians as well, particularly the fact of who will set Christians free. Who will set people free from the sin of slavery? We get it right back there in the Garden of, um, as the, the Garden of Eden. They're being given uh, all these curses by God as Adam and Eve, they've sinned. But there is this promise that from the seed of Eve, from her and from Adam, there will be someone who comes along and breaks the yoke of slavery to sin that is upon them. And then we see that promise uh, continue to come through, that it'll be someone not just from Adam and Eve, it'll be someone from Abraham, and then it'll not just from Abraham, from Isaac, and it'll be from Jacob. And then we see that carry on, and we see that it'll come from Judah, the son of Isaac. And then we go to David, and it says, oh yes, it'll be someone from David now. And so it gets narrower and narrower as to who is going to be the one that is going to save people from their sins. And then we get to Jesus and the word of God is fulfilled. And you see that, those genealogies you see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, you think, oh, boring list of names. No, they're very important lists of names, showing how God always gives freedom according to his word. Just as it says here, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken in his word in the Old Testament, Jesus came and set his people free from slavery to sin. So that's my first main point this morning. Freedom comes according to God's word. My second main point is that freedom comes according to God's work on hearts. Freedom comes according to God's work on hearts. How do people get their freedom? How do the Israelites get their freedom here? Well, Cyrus says, yes, you can go. But why does Cyrus do that? It's told to us in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. It's by God moving the heart of a king here that freedom comes. And it's, that's the same with us as Christians. It's God giving us Jesus Christ. We can't minimize God the Father's role in salvation of Christians. It's not as though Jesus was the one who sort of said, yes, I'll go do it, um, and God the Father was like, oh, yeah, whatever. No, it's for God so loved the world. It starts with God the Father, and the Son willingly goes to the cross. Just as God moved the heart of Cyrus, so God raised Jesus up and said, Jesus, I'm going to give my only begotten son so that people can be set free from the sin of slavery. And so God raises up these kings to make this offer of freedom so that people can be set free from the slavery that they're in. We've got to remember that it's an offer that is made here to the Israelites. It's not a command. What does it say in verse 2? This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. The offer is sent out to all the Israelites. Do you want to go? 
Do you want to be free? I'm making the offer. You can go. And the same is sent out to all peoples of the earth from Jesus. Do you want freedom? Jesus makes the offer because God the Father has loved the world. Jesus comes and is raised up and makes the offer to people. Do you want to be free from sin? And God also moves these kings to put it into writing. He moves the king of Cyrus to make sure that it's down in writing. In verse 1, king of, uh, at the end there, the last part of verse 1, it says, uh, throughout his realm, and to put it in writing. God works in a similar way today. Do we hear Jesus speak to us directly? Some people claim that they do. But for the most part, it's through the writings that we have preserved that Jesus would have encouraged his disciples to do that you've got to preserve these words of mine. Just as Cyrus made sure it was in writing, so Jesus made sure that we heard his voice through the writing as well. God moves the heart of Cyrus to put it in writing. And so we have, as Christians also, the writings of Jesus, the, the words of Jesus in the word that we have before us in the Bible. And also, he moves the heart of this king to tell us how to obtain the freedom. How do we obtain the, how do the Israelites obtain the freedom? Well, what are they meant to do? Verse 2, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. You have your freedom, now go. And it's the same with Jesus. He says, you can be free. Just follow me, just go, just act. Follow me, have repentance and faith. And follow after me, and you will be free. It's the same with the Israelites. It's the same with us as well. But are the hearts of the king the only hearts that are moved here? Does freedom only come through God moving the hearts of kings and then people accepting uh, that promise of freedom and taking the freedom? No. We're told that God moved the hearts of the people as well. What does it say in verse 5? Cyrus has made this proclamation, you can be free. And then it says in verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God had to move the Israelites' hearts, or otherwise they would never accept this offer of freedom. Now how is that possible? Surely slaves should automatically jump at the chance to be free. Here's this marvellous offer. They should jump at it. They shouldn't need God to move their hearts. Well, moving back to Jerusalem was going to be hard work. It was going to be awfully hard work. It meant that they would have to leave behind what they've accumulated over the last 70 years, the houses that they've got, all the possessions that they've got. They were going to have to leave those and go back. And they were going back to basically what was a dump. They were going back to Jerusalem with city walls torn down, the city itself destroyed, and the temple, the glorious temple that Solomon had built, had been destroyed as well. They were going back to a place that was a horrible place to live, whereas where they were in Babylon, they probably had some nice houses, they had some nice places, they, and they knew their way around, whereas they were going back to a place that most of them had never lived in. Yes, there are some older people who were going back and they remembered Jerusalem. But they, most of the people were going back to a dump 
that they didn't know their way around even. And the people that were, and there were some people in the area who were enemies of them. It's not like the place had been completely deserted while they'd been away. There were other people, people living in the land who had basically taken possession of it. And, and when the Jews get back, they have all kinds of trouble with those people. So it's going to be hard work going back to a place that's pretty much destroyed. They're going to have to rebuild. They're going back to a place they don't really remember. And they're going back to a place that's got hostile enemies living there. And it's also going to be a long journey. It's basically a four-month trip back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And most of it was across desert. Not fun. I mean, I, I don't like long journeys in the car that take sort of 45 minutes to an hour. You know, I find it a hassle. Think about four months. I'd be out of my brain. <laughs> There's no way I'd be heading back. So it's not surprising that the people wouldn't go if God had not moved their hearts. They wouldn't have accepted this offer of freedom if God had not moved their hearts. And it's the same with us as Christians. Unbelievers would not accept the offer of freedom of God except God moves their hearts. You wonder why people don't want to be free from sin? It's because God doesn't move their hearts. Because they realise how tough it is to be a Christian. It's hard work being a Christian. You've basically got to leave behind everything that you trusted in before. All the things that you thought that made you happy, that you relied upon to give you joy, you've got to leave those behind. All the good works that you did previously, they're demolished. They're wiped away. Now you have to come to Christ in complete humility, admitting that you've got nothing to offer. There's nothing about you that is good. You come to him simply clinging to the cross. It's quite humbling, and people don't like to do it. It's hard work to humble yourself so much that you say before God, there is nothing I can offer you. It's all of you, O God. And then it's hard work as you are a Christian. You don't know what it's like to be a Christian before, just like these Israelites and remember what it was like to be in Jerusalem before. It's all a bit of a new experience, particularly if you've never grown up in a Christian home and you've never clapped eyes on the Bible. It's quite a bewildering book to look at. So it's going to be hard work to sort of read through the Bible and start to get used to the different theological terms that are there and try and understand what it is God would have me do. And then it's hard work to be a Christian in the fact that you've got enemies against you all the time as well. You used to be one of those enemies of the gospel and of Christians. But now you're going to be on the other side, just as these Israelites were going back to a place that was going to be hard work, but they've got enemies there. And you as a Christian have enemies out there who are always hammering away at you to forsake the faith, to recant, to turn back to a life of sin and to leave that freedom that you have. So it's only if God moves your heart that you're going to be a Christian. It's just too much hard work to humble yourself and then to build a life serving the Lord with all the enemies and all the hostilities that are around you. But does God move people's hearts to accept this freedom? If it's such hard work, does he move people to do things that are stupid, move people to do things that are going to really hurt them in the long run? I mean, the way I'm painting the picture here, it sounds like it's going to be terrible for the Israelites. So why would God want to move their hearts to go back and do something that's really hard? 
Why would God want to move the hearts of people to be Christians when it's going to be such hard work? Well, that brings me to my second main, and my third main point. Freedom comes with gifts. Freedom that God gives comes with gifts. The Israelites are up for hard work here, but God richly blesses them as well. What do they get? Well, these Israelites, firstly, they get land. They get land, and it's in the right spot. They're allowed to go back to where? It says in verse 2, build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. They're allowed to go back to the very spot they want to have. It's kind of like um, someone makes you an offer of land, and it's not land out in the middle of nowhere, some backwater town that you don't want to be there. No, you're getting land that is exactly where you want it. You're getting the ocean views that you like with the, the public transport system nearby that's going to be uh, very helpful. You've got the school there for the kids. You're getting prime real estate. And that's what the Israelites are getting here. They're getting prime real estate. They're getting exactly the kind of land that they want. It's a great gift from God. And they're getting the building permit to build their temple. They're not just having to go back to the land and then, you know, cease all work and sort of live in tents and not be able to build the temple and worship God accordingly. No. It says, verse 2, build a temple for him at Jerusalem. Now, any of you who've tried to deal with local council and building permits, uh, some of you have some ripper stories, I, I know, about trying to get things through local council. It's awfully difficult. Here, the Israelites have this wonderful gift from God that they have the king's permission to build a temple. What a privilege, what a gift from God they have. And then they don't just go back by themselves like one or two of them. They've got a bunch of people that God is sending with them. What does it say in verse 5? This wonderful gift that God gives these people to encourage them and support them. Verse 5, Then the family heads of Judah... And Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. They've got people from Judah. Very important. Remember the promise of God? Where was the Messiah going to come from? Who's going to be the one who's going to save people? The king? From the tribe of Judah. They've got the Judah people going back to the land. That's wonderful. That's a gift. They've got priests and Levites going back with them as well. They've got people who can teach them and instruct them as to how they are to worship God appropriately. What a wonderful gift. It's not like they're going back and no one really knows what to do. No, they've got priests and Levites going with them. And they've also got um, uh, a leader to go back with them as well. In verse 8, it says, Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out, that's the articles from the temple, had them brought out by Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, Shezbazar, um, some people think it's another name for Zerubbabel, but that's probably unlikely. And uh, the, the word there, uh, the prince, probably a better translation would be uh, sort of a governor. It's not necessarily that he's uh, royal and going to take a sort of ruling them, uh, but he's a governor that's given them to, to lead these people back. And, uh, and we see that over in chapter 5, verse 14. He's mentioned again, and uh, the, the word there is governor. Isn't it? 5.14, he even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. That's wrong. Uh, 
Oh, yes, continues. Then, long verse. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. Yes, I was right all along. Um, Split verses. All right, um, yes, so he is basically a governor, a leader of them that is going to help them. So they're going back, they've got the land, they've got the building permit, they've got people to go with them, and what else do they have? Provisions. They have silver, they have gold, they have goods, they have livestock, they have free will offerings from people. They have valuable gifts. And what else do they have? Things that they thought were long lost. What did Nebuchadnezzar do when he came to Jerusalem and destroyed it? He went into the temple and pinched all the good stuff out of the temple. And the Israelites were like, oh, it's, it's all over. We're never seeing those again. What does Cyrus do? Verse 7, moreover, plus, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah, making sure he gets the right person, make sure all those articles go back. What a blessing, what an encouragement. Yes, it's going to be hard work for those Israelites going back, but God is richly blessing them. They've got provisions to go on the journey, and they've got those articles to go back into the temple once it's built so that we can worship God accordingly. And it's the same with us as Christians. God's not moving us to do something stupid, to harm ourselves, to hurt us. Yes, it's hard work to be a Christian, but God richly blesses us when he gives us freedom. One day we will receive the land that has been promised in heaven. We will go to the land where our citizenship is. We will be there and we'll be able to worship God. Just as these Israelites were going to be able to go back and worship at the temple, worship him as he was instructed them to do so, so we will be able to go to heaven and be with God and worship him in the way he would have us do so. And he makes sure that we have other people there with us, just like he made sure there were other people with the Israelites. We will be there in heaven, not just us on our own singing away. No, we'll be there with so many people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, all worshipping the Lamb of God together. And he will give us all these kinds of good possessions there. We read the description of, in Revelation of what the city will be like. Silver, gold, possessions, goods. We will be able to sustain ourselves there. It will be a wonderful place. God gives wonderful gifts with his freedom. But even now we have so many gifts from God to sustain us. It's hard work being a Christian, yes. But God richly blesses us as well. We can't underestimate the blessings that God gives us. The fact that we're meeting on this block of land right now is a blessing of God. The fact that we've got a building over our heads, that the council permits us, permitted this building to be built, and they permit it to continue to be here, and can permit us to worship God here, is a wonderful blessing from him. Just like those Israelites had council permission to build the temple, we've got council permission in this country to have a place of worship here. And we have people with us right now. It's a marvellous encouragement to have other brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't understand Christians that call themselves Christians and say, but I don't go to church. Like, do you realise the gifts you're missing out on? What a privilege it is to have other Christians around you who can encourage you, support you, 
And he gives us provisions as well, just as he gave provisions to the Israelites. He gives us our daily food. He gives us clothes to wear. He gives us homes to live in. God continues to bless us abundantly. And he gives us, of course, the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can worship him appropriately. The strength to serve him day after day and the gifts that we have to share with one another, the gifts of encouragement, gifts of generosity, gifts of leadership, gifts of teaching. Just as he gave leaders and teachers in the priests and the Levites to the Israelites, so he blesses his church with people who are able to teach and instruct his people as to how they are to worship God appropriately. God gives freedom with gifts. He does not give us freedom that is a hard, hard slog with no encouragements at all. So do you thank God for your freedom from slavery to sin, just as these Israelites must have been just overjoyed at the freedom that they now had? They had waited a long 70 years in Babylon, in their slavery, in their exile, and they were overjoyed to go back. Do you thank God for your freedom that you have? Do you thank God that he gave his promises in his word and then fulfilled those promises in setting you free? Do you thank God that he raised up Jesus, that king, to be the one to fulfill those promises and to proclaim the offer of freedom to people and to make sure it's in writing so that we can read it and accept the offer? And do you thank God that he moved your heart to accept the offer in the first place? He could have moved past you and moved someone else's heart instead. Never take for granted the fact that you have accepted the freedom that God has given. And do you thank him for the many gifts that he gives you to encourage you in this life and to encourage you about the next life, where you are going, the gifts that you will receive in heaven? Or would you rather grumble against God? Grumble against him for the things that he hasn't given you and the hardships you may experience, the trials and suffering you you have We should never be discontent towards our Heavenly Father. He has been so marvellous in setting us free and then giving us so many encouragements to follow him. And what about if you're not a Christian here this morning? Where do you fit in with all of this? Well, you're still part of the people that have this offer of freedom made to you. You are part of the remnant who have survived the wrath of God to be able to hear the offer of freedom right now. These Israelites here, they were part of the survivors. The wrath of God had come through the Babylonian army and destroyed many of them. But these are the survivors. The word is used of them uh, in verse 4. And the people of any place where survivors, remnant, may now be living. If you're not a Christian, you're a survivor. All of us deserve to be carted off to hell as soon as we sin once. The fact that God keeps back his wrath for a time is so that we are survivors and we can hear his offer of freedom and have a time in which we can accept it. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus' offer of freedom, then his offer of freedom still stands while you live and breathe. And you have the opportunity today to accept it right now But don't delay, because tomorrow you may not be here to accept the offer of freedom. 
or Jesus may return and you will, the freedom offer is withdrawn. When Jesus returns, that's it. No one survives after that. All those who are outside Christ will be eternally punished and experience God's wrath. If you're not a Christian, accept his offer of freedom today. Stop living in sin and being enslaved in sin. Accept the offer and accept the encouragements and gifts that God gives. Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you saw us in our state of sin and misery and you loved us. You loved us so much that you would raise up Jesus Christ, your Son, your only begotten Son, so that he could take the penalty for us, so that that offer of freedom that he made would be true. And we, if we follow him, if we repent and believe of our sins, we can be saved from sin. Lord, we thank you so much for moving the hearts of so many people in this room to accept that offer of freedom. But Lord, we boldly ask you this morning that you may move more hearts. Move the hearts of the people that we know that are here this morning who have not accepted you and those people who have we know in our community who do not accept you and even in our country. Lord, move the hearts of Australians all across this country to accept your offer of freedom. And Lord, help us as Christians to delight in the gifts that you have given us. It is hard work serving you. And we experience so many temptations and troubles, Lord. Lord, help us to always be encouraged by the people that you have placed here with us and by the gifts that you have given us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.